We're continuing where we left uh, in our study of the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 7, verse 53, through the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. When I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher named Mr. Lancey, and he was without a doubt the strictest teacher I ever had. He had lots of rules, and I was always breaking those rules. Uh, He was always giving me detention, sending me to the office, and on one occasion, I kid you not, he paddled me because of a joke that I told. I would tell you what the joke is, but I'm afraid if he's still alive, he'll look me up and do it again. That was back in the day when you actually could paddle students, but it was on a Friday afternoon in May of 1985, I was doing something I should not have been doing. I was horse playing with a buddy, and there was a baseball bat involved, and I pretended that I was going to hit him, and I swung it back, and when I did, I felt something, I heard something, I turned around and realized that I had just hit Mr. Lancey in the head with a baseball bat. And immediately, I knew my life was over. (laughs) Because if you get paddled for a bad joke, what do you get for hitting your teacher in the head with a baseball bat? I began to think about my funeral and who... (laughs) who was going to attend, and what they might say. Well, on that particular occasion, Mr. Lancey did something I did not expect. On that day, he showed me mercy. He did not give me detention, and he didn't send me to the office, and he didn't even call home. He just forgave me. That was the only time he ever forgave me for anything I ever did. I'll tell you that. But on that one occasion, I experienced real mercy. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you needed real mercy? You crossed a line. You broke a rule. You broke the law. You knew better, but you did it anyway. And you didn't have any excuses. You deserve to be punished. In that moment, the only thing you could do was plead for mercy. We've all been there. In fact, that is where we all stand before God. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The greatest need that any of us have is mercy. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. Well, in our scripture this morning, we're going to read the story of a woman who was in need of mercy. She was caught in the act of a terrible sin, and she was surrounded by a mob of people who were ready and willing to take her life. But then she met Jesus, and Jesus showed her mercy And by the way, I want to point out that there may not be another passage in all of the Bible that really 
captures the whole person of Jesus the way this passage does. We see in this story his love. We also see his holiness. We see Jesus' courage, but we also see his tenderness. We see his mercy for the sinner, but we also see his willingness to confront sin. John said back in chapter 1 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. This passage is probably the most vivid example of what that looks like in all of the Word of God. And we're going to see three things that Jesus did in order to make this mercy available to anyone who's willing to receive it. And first of all, I want you to notice the dilemma that Jesus faced. The dilemma that Jesus faced. Look at verse 53 of chapter 7. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You remember the Feast of Tabernacles has just ended. It's time for everyone to go home. And when John says that everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that is kind of a subtle reminder that Jesus did not have a home to go to. We remember what Jesus said about himself in Luke chapter 9 when he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yes, Jesus knew what it was like to be homeless. And being homeless, he went to the Mount of Olives, which was right there to the east of Jerusalem, and he spent the night there. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. It seems very fitting to me that very early in the morning Jesus taught in the temple. Just as the physical light of the sun was beginning to break, Jesus, the light of the world, was shining. And Jesus is teaching the people once again, just like in chapter 7, we are not told the content of Jesus' teaching, but we are told that he was rudely interrupted. Look at verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. If you can imagine Jesus teaching, and then all of a sudden here comes this mob of scribes and Pharisees, and they throw a woman down to the ground in front of them all and said, Hey, we caught her in the act of adultery. So we automatically know this was not some baseless accusation. She was guilty and everyone knew it. But can you just imagine the shame mixed with fear that was written all over her face as her sin was publicly exposed? Now, I'm willing to bet that these scribes and Pharisees had actually known about that adulterous relationship for some time, but they didn't care. And then eventually they found a way to exploit it. Somebody had an idea. Hey, I know. The next time her husband goes to work and her lover comes over, 
why don't we rush in, grab the woman, and throw her in front of Jesus? You see, uh, they were using her as a pawn in a game of chess, and they were willing to sacrifice her in order to get to King Jesus. Now, this becomes very evident in verse 5. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, let me pause right there. You remember what the Pharisees said about those who were following Jesus in chapter 7? Those people don't know the law. This was one of the basic uh, attacks on Jesus throughout his ministry. They accused him of being contrary to the law. Well, they made a big mistake here. They began to cite the law to Jesus, the Son of God, who wrote it. They begin citing the law to him. Moses commands us to stone her. What do you say? Well, guess what? In the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, the law did require that adulterers be stoned. Adultery was taken very seriously in ancient Israel because adultery rips apart marriage and marriage is the fabric of society. And this same law, however, that they were citing required that not just one, but both the man and the woman would be stoned. And so here's a question, where's the man? It takes two to tango, right? If they really cared about the law, they would have brought him too. But they didn't care about the law. John says they were just trying to test Jesus. Think about the situation that Jesus was suddenly in. All of a sudden, the law was at stake. The life of this woman was at stake. And in one sense, you could say the compassion of Jesus and the love of Jesus for sinners was also at stake. If Jesus responded to them by saying, no, don't stone her, well, he just contradicted the law. And how can the Messiah, the prophet, the son of God, oppose God's law? If, on the other hand, Jesus said, well, that is what the law says. So let's do it. They would immediately turn to the crowd and say, look, this is the man you call the friend of sinners. Where's his compassion? Making matters worse, Rome did not allow the Jews to carry out capital punishment. That's why when Jesus was arrested, they carried him to Pontius Pilate and Pilate had to approve it. But if Jesus followed the law of Moses, he would have been breaking the law of Rome and then they would have used that against him as well. So can you see how in their minds, they thought they had set up Jesus in the perfect trap? But listen, Jesus was not trapped. They were, and they just didn't know it. Ladies and gentlemen, when we read this story, there is something much bigger that is going on. There's something that is much bigger than this one woman and her accusers. What we have in John chapter 8 is not just a real story about something that actually happened. It's kind of like a summary of the Bible. 
You see, first of all, this woman who was caught in adultery, she represents the human race. She represents all of us. We are guilty. We've broken God's law. We have no excuses. We deserve judgment. We are under condemnation. Now, maybe your sin is different from hers. And maybe your sin is well hidden to those around you, but it's not hidden to God. Just like this woman, not only are we guilty spiritually, we're guilty of a capital offense. Listen, sin is not a spiritual misdemeanor. Sin is at its root, at its core, treason against God. And that's why the first part of Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so we have this great dilemma. We have this question. How can sinners who are guilty stand before God who is holy? How can sinners who are guilty stand before God who is holy? In fact, God's not only holy, he is perfectly holy. In him, there is no hint of sin. The prophet Habakkuk said that his eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. The angels around the throne cry out repeatedly, holy, holy, holy. And in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim, these angelic creatures, they literally cover their faces in God's presence. That's how holy God is. On the one hand, God is holy, but on the other hand, he is merciful. The Bible says he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And it is not his will that any should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the dilemma. And some people will just brush it aside and ask the question, well, why doesn't God just simply choose to forgive sin? Why doesn't he just ignore it? Listen, for God to ignore sin would be to deny his own character. So again, we come back to this question, this dilemma. How can justice and mercy be harmonized? How can God deal justly with sin while also showing mercy to the sinner? That, ladies and gentlemen, is the question of the Bible. That is the question that the Bible set out, sets out to answer from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it all points to Jesus. And so we see the dilemma that Jesus faced and how, in a sense, it is the dilemma that mankind faces as well. But then we also see here the solution Jesus provided. We see the solution Jesus provided. Go back to the middle of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, halfway through verse 6, it looked like there was no hope. Halfway through verse 6, it seemed like there was no way of escape. And then we come to those two glorious words, but Jesus. How many of you 
have been in a bind? How many of you have been trapped? How many of you thought there was no hope whatsoever but Jesus? But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger. Now, John does not tell us what Jesus wrote. We do know, however, that this particular word that is used, meaning to write, in the Greek, it only appears one time in the whole Bible, right here in verse 6 and nowhere else. And this word, it's a compound word. It's two words, write against. Not just to write, but to write against. Whatever Jesus was writing in the dirt, he was writing against this woman's accusers. Now, the thought of Jesus writing with his finger in the dirt immediately reminds us of Exodus chapter 31, because Exodus 31 tells us that Moses, when he received the Ten Commandments, that they were written with the finger of God. God himself inscribed his law on those tablets. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, writing with his finger. And maybe Jesus simply wrote out the Ten Commandments in the sand. There's a part of me that wants to think, if I can use my imagination, that maybe Jesus was writing in the sand the names of some women with whom those scribes and Pharisees had committed adultery, but that's just speculation. Whatever Jesus wrote, he wrote in the sand against them. He wrote in the sand in order to show the scribes and Pharisees that they too are guilty. They too had broken God's law. Now, we know this because of verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now think about that statement, and I want you to notice a couple of things that Jesus did. Notice, first of all, Jesus upheld the law, didn't he? He actually upheld the law. At no point did Jesus suggest that God's law would be ignored or that the penalty would not be carried out. But at the same time, Jesus protected the law breaker. He showed compassion for the woman who was guilty. And he did this by reminding them of a principle that these religious leaders should have known. Those who stand condemned by the law are in no position to demand that others be condemned. Let me say that again. Those who stand condemned by the law are in no position whatsoever to demand that others be condemned. Please understand, the problem here is not that the Pharisees called her adultery sin. Well, it was sin. The problem is that they focused on her guilt while ignoring their own. The problem is that they demanded justice for her, but not for themselves. You know, sometimes we Christians do the same, even though 
we've been forgiven so great a debt, even though we have received so great a salvation. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we find ourselves speaking towards others and acting towards others as if they are sinners and we are not. And we may not throw literal stones, but we have stones that we know how to throw, and we can throw the stones of insults, and we can throw the stones of name-calling, we can throw the stones of gossip, we can throw the stones of sarcasm, and I see all sorts of stones getting thrown on social media. But Jesus said there's one person one person who is qualified to throw the stone of judgment, it is he who is, quote, without sin. Who is without sin? Jesus. This is why it was so important that Jesus live a perfect, sinless life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had to be sinless in order to die in the place of sinners. He had to be without sin to die as a substitute for sinners. And so Jesus, the only one without sin, the only one who is actually qualified to throw a stone at this woman, he did not do it. And he didn't do it because he knew that six months later, all the stones of judgment for the sin of the world would be cast at him. He didn't condemn her because he knew that soon he would go to the cross and he would be condemned for her. He offered himself to be condemned in her place. And it was because he was the son of God without sin that he could do that for her and for you and for me. Now, apparently... They did not initially get the point because look at verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Isn't it interesting? Two times God wrote with his finger on the stone tablets. He wrote the law two times, Jesus wrote with his finger in the sand. And these scribes and these Pharisees, when they heard Jesus speak, he who's without sin can cast the first stone. When they began to look down and really think about whatever it was Jesus was writing in the dirt, all of a sudden they began to think about every lie they had ever told, every time they had ever coveted, Every time they did not honor father and mother, they began to think about every time they failed to love God. And suddenly they are keenly aware of their guilt. And slowly but surely, those stones that they held in their hands a moment ago, ready 
to take that woman's life, those stones fell to the ground and they began to walk away. It's very interesting that John would actually emphasize here the order in which they left. Did you notice that? John makes a point of the order in which they left. The fact that they left from the oldest to the youngest. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, the oldest of the Pharisees had the most sin because they had lived the longest. But they were also the ones that all of the other guys looked up to. And so when the oldest Pharisees began to look down at what Jesus was writing, and when they began to think of their own sin, when they suddenly had this sense of conviction, this realization that they were guilty, that they were not qualified to judge, and when they walked away, those Pharisees, just a little bit younger than them, they thought, well, if those guys can't judge her, I guess I can't either. And they began to leave, and it was like a domino effect, and finally, you've got the young ones, the green ones, the ones that are right out of seminary, and they're looking around and they think, all of our teachers and all of our mentors have left. If none of those guys are qualified to judge this woman, I guess we aren't either, and so they leave too. Now, just like those scribes, just like those Pharisees, a man or woman may boast of their own righteousness for a time, but when they stand before God and the hidden things are revealed and when their lives are exposed, let me tell you, all boasting will cease and the sinner will be speechless, just like in John chapter 8. We'll look at verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. We're going to come back to that word Lord in a moment. But remember, the law required that there be two witnesses in order for a person to be convicted. And so when Jesus stood up, and all of the people who were accusing her were gone, do you realize what this means? All of a sudden, what she thought was going to be the worst day of her life, suddenly it becomes, get this, the best day of her life. And just like that, Jesus showed her mercy. He showed her mercy while upholding the law. He showed her mercy but not at the expense of justice. And only Jesus can do this because only Jesus was the one without sin who was willing to take our place and be condemned in our place so that we could be saved. We see the dilemma that Jesus faced. We see the solution that Jesus provided. But one more thing I want you to notice, we see the freedom Jesus bestowed. Notice in verse 11, this woman called him Lord. I do not think that we should overlook that word. I'm, I don't think that we can really put too much emphasis on that word here. It is not a title of respect that she is giving to Jesus. 
When you look at uh, the context of John and the fact that in these last chapters of John's gospel, Jesus has made so many claims about himself. Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven. Jesus claimed that God was his father. He claimed to be the source of life. He claimed that one day he would resurrect every man, woman, boy, and girl. He claimed that one day he would judge all mankind. And in this context in which Jesus makes all of these claims, we come to John chapter 8, and this woman beholds Jesus, and she calls him Lord. No, don't overlook that word, Lord. When she called him Lord, she was agreeing with all of the above. And here's Jesus' response. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. You know what that is? That is a full and complete pardon. Neither do I condemn you is Jesus wiping the slate clean. And neither do I condemn you is God's response to every repentant sinner who is willing to humble himself or herself and come to Christ and plead for mercy. If you've ever wondered how God would respond to your sin, whatever that sin may be, you might think, I've done blank. How would God respond to blank? Here's your answer right here in verse 11. He will say, neither do I condemn you. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But notice Jesus did not stop there, did he? He then said to her, Go and sin some more? No. Go and sin no more. Notice, he called her adultery sin. He was willing to call sin what it is. He didn't call it a mistake or an error or a moral failure. Yes, he called it sin but he said to her, go and sin no more. Sin no more here does not mean that she never again is going to commit a sin. It does not mean that a person who is saved will never commit a sin again. No, what it means is that our lives no longer revolve around sin and sin no longer has dominion or control of our lives. Now, I need you to really, really pay attention to the order of these two statements that Jesus made. First, he said to her, neither do I condemn you. And then he said to her, go and sin no more. Do you realize why that order is so important? And why the order of those two statements is really what makes the gospel the gospel? You see, Jesus knew that she would never be free from all of her adulterous ways as long as she was living in a state of condemnation. That first, she must be freed from condemnation. And so Jesus did not say to her, go and sin no more, and then later on, I will not condemn you. 
as if to say that we can somehow work our way out of condemnation by clean living. No. First comes freedom from condemnation. And then comes power over sin. You know, every man-made religion gets this wrong. Every man-made religion says, do this, do that, follow these rules, five pillars, eightfold path. If you follow our regiment, if you do all of these things, maybe eventually you will not be condemned. But the Bible says, the gospel says the exact opposite. It offers us freedom from condemnation up front. And it is that freedom which then enables us to live victoriously over sin. If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, I hope you'll remember this. The gospel is the power that frees us from sin, not the reward for having freed ourselves. The gospel is the power that frees us from sin. It is not the reward for having freed ourselves. This woman caught in adultery was convicted of her sin, and that conviction drove her to Christ. But you know what's so sad? Here are these scribes, and here are these Pharisees, and they also were convicted of their sin, but that conviction drove them away from Christ. And the sad part of this story is the what if. What if these scribes and what if these Pharisees, what if they had been willing to humble themselves? What if they would have admitted to the very point that Jesus was making, which they knew to be true? And what if they had simply confessed their sin and acknowledged Jesus as Lord? Do you realize the same mercy that she received, they would have received as well. And I just want to close telling you, the same mercy that Jesus extended to her, he's offering even now to every one of us and to every man, woman, boy, and girl. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, we thank you for mercy. Even though we don't deserve it, which is what makes mercy what it is, we thank you that in spite of all that we've done, in spite of the many times we've turned from you and we've rebelled against you, that you still offer us that, that same mercy, real mercy, just like that woman received in John chapter 8. And Father, I pray if there are any here today who are perhaps at that crossroads of faith right now, they're in that very place, that very position where they're going to decide how they're going to respond. Just as that woman and those scribes and Pharisees, they were all guilty, they were all convicted, but they responded in different ways. And Father, I pray for that one who's here today who has never placed their faith in Christ as Lord that this would be that day that they would acknowledge their guilt, but then place their faith in Jesus, the one who was without sin, who died for us, who took our place, who rose again, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I pray that 
even now, this day would be their day of salvation. God, I pray as well for those here who, who know Christ that we would resist that temptation of throwing stones at others. That yes, we would speak the truth in love. Yes, we would stand on what your word says and never try to water it down. But that we would refrain from that bad habit of speaking and acting as if others are sinners, but we are not. God, help us to remember that we are sinners saved by grace. May we never forget the debt that we owe to mercy. And so, Father, help us to take what we've heard today and apply it to our lives. If there are any who need to take that step of confessing Jesus as Lord, how I pray that they would do so even now, and we'll be sure to give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name.